Everybody, if you need a lesson, um, raise your hand and someone will walk down with a lesson. Uh, we've got uh, a number of folks, I'm sure, this morning visiting, but, but a friend of mine is here, and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, say welcome. Um, let me tell you, as I'm going through this martyr class, one of the things that really pleases me is that we have a government that doesn't make what we're doing illegal and doesn't make what we're doing a crime punishable in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And we're very honored, particularly in Texas, to have a number of Christians in our government. And, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of us in here vote and, and care about such things. It's a stewardship obligation I think Christians have. And so periodically I like to take time out and recognize and thank uh, uh, some of the folks in our class who actually are in public service, who are, are some of our elected officials. And so um, we've got, and, and obviously with an election coming up, uh, I would never use this class and it wouldn't be right for me to use this class to endorse a candidate or anything like that. Uh, anybody that ever wants to know who I vote for, I'm always glad to talk about it, but not in church because that's not what I'm doing up here. I'm teaching church history. Um, so I'm not, I don't, I don't want you all to feel I am, but I am honored that two people in this class are also running for public office that are here today. And uh, uh, I want to introduce them as well because they are, are wonderful, wonderful people um, and good friends. So I want, County Judge Bob Eccles, how long have you been a, an elected official in Harris County? 24 years. <laughs> he was 12 when he was first elected. Um, I, I don't see Debbie here this morning. She and Mike usually sit right over here. Debbie Riddle is, I guess, this is her second term. Peggy, you would know. This is her second term, and, and she does a wonderful job. Constable Ron Hickman, he always sits right there. Okay. How, yeah. <laughs> That's who we call when our house is getting broken into. We love Constable Hickman. Um, how, many, uh, how many years, Constable? 35 years of public service. It's incredible. Um, we have this morning Peggy Hamrick, who is my state rep. If you live around me, she's your state rep too. And, and uh, uh, doesn't normally attend here, but is here this morning with Patricia Harless. And Peggy is, while she is our elected state rep, and how long have you been state rep, Peggy? 15 years. 15 years as our state rep. Good Christian woman. She's also running for the Senate seat that John Lindsay has stepped down from and I think did, has, even, has his endorsement, I think, in that race. And uh, so thank you for running with courage and we wish you the best. And then Patricia Harless is who she's sitting next to. You all probably know Patricia and, 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 and her family because uh, she and Sam and Justin sit down here like all the time. Um, but Patricia's running for state rep and you'll see her signs out there everywhere. And if you don't, you can... Obviously, if you want to, to encourage her in that run, you can always put one in your yard. But she's down here, too, and you're running for state rep of which? 126. 126, which is Peggy's seat that Peggy's giving up to run for the state senate. So bottom line is, is uh, uh, thank you all for the public service you do and attempt to do. We really appreciate it. With that, let's talk about martyrs. Everybody come on in, take a seat. Uh, 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 this is family, and it's okay if you're a little late, a little early. It doesn't matter. 
Um, I was going to do martyrs in two weeks. It stretched into three. Now it looks like it's going to go into four. And martyrs are kind of encouraging for me. They're also kind of depressing. So I'm trying to get through the martyrs, but we're not through them yet. So uh, we're going to do Ignatius this morning. I want to start, though, and I want to tell you about Abdur Razik. Because Abdur Razik was in a hospital bed because of a bombing that happened about a month ago over in Pakistan. It was a bombing where one was killed. It was a bombing where 30 were injured. And among those 30 was Abdur Razik. And Abdur Razik had a chance to give an interview from his hospital bed where he explained that had he died, he would have been a martyr. Because what Abdur Razik said is, I joined the suicide squad and wanted to be a martyr to establish the law of Allah. You see, Abdur Razik was the suicide bomber who just didn't manage to blow himself up. He killed someone else and murdered uh, that person and, and then had 30 uh, uh, injured, including himself. Um, Abdur Razik would not have been a martyr, not by my book, not by the usage of the word as it's come to us from the Greek for martyr. You see, a terrorist is what Abdur Razik would have been. That's someone who dies while trying to kill others. That's very different than the martyrs that we're studying. These are people who held their witness to Jesus Christ even at the cost of their lives. We have female martyrs, we have male martyrs, sex didn't make a difference. What made a difference is they would give their life up to bear witness to Jesus instead of denying Him. And I hope you see the difference. There are Christian martyrs today. Uh, Dale Hearn has shown me a book, Lives Given, Not Taken. It's a story of 21st century. That's our century, martyrs for the cause of Christ on the mission field. And uh, that book's available. I checked off Amazon.com. I'm sure you can get it other places as well. The martyr that we're going to talk about this morning, though, is one who died a number of years ago. We're going to talk about Ignatius of Antioch. They call, scholars call him Ignatius of Antioch because they don't want to confuse him with other Ignatiuses. There's an Ignatius Loyola. And so you've got other Ignatiuses out there. This is Ignatius of Antioch. He's different. As we look at him this morning, there are three things at least that I hope will happen in your own brain as we go through this. First of all, I hope you will gain strength. Yeah, I think he's standing on the ground, but it's a really good looking pose. I hope you gain strength from seeing what this gentleman endured for the cause of his faith and the cause of Christ. I also hope you'll gain some insight as you see what was important to him in the weeks before he died. The letters we're looking at are letters he wrote on his way to his execution, knowing fully where he was going. And what he saw as important, and some things that it reveals to us about the early church. I think we'll give you some insight this morning. And last but not least, I hope you'll get some encouragement from this class because I think it's, it's encouraging to see the way he was reaching out and the way people and God reached out to him. So with that, let's go through our class. Let's start with a timeline and, and make some sense out of where we are date-wise. If the church was established in 30 A.D. after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus on Pentecost... 
we've got the New Testament itself, which is a collection of scriptures that were written somewhere between 50 A.D. and about 95 A.D. We don't know precisely those dates. They did not date things the way we do. In fact, as I've been teasing you about, when we reach the 600s, one of the things we're going to study, it was in the 600s that Dennis the Short uh, uh, was the monk who computed the calendar and changed the dating system into what we have now. And so uh, uh, we don't know the precise dates of when Scripture was written, but those are good general dates. Ignatius of Antioch was martyred, we believe, around 110. It could have been a couple years earlier. It could have been a couple years later. But that's when he was. Now, we talked last week about why Christians were being martyred. What was the charge? If Hickman had to arrest them, what would he have arrested them for? The major charge that most Christians were arrested and killed under was atheism. Isn't that funny? In an ironic way, not a ha-ha funny. Um, isn't that kind of bizarre? Christians were arrested and killed for atheism. That was the major crime against the state. And in fact, if Christians had been around when Katrina hit, it probably would have brought on a greater wave of martyrdoms. Do you know why? Because they'd have been blamed. The reason... Hurricane Katrina hit is because we have a bunch of Christians who don't worship the gods that protect New Orleans. I don't know what kind of gods those would be, but um, here's, here's, here's the way Tertullian wrote. They think that the Christians are the cause of every public disaster. If the Tiber floods, that's the river that goes through Rome. If the Nile doesn't flood, because it has to flood for crops. If the Nile doesn't send its waters up over the fields. If the heavens give no rain. If there's an earthquake. If there's a famine. If there's pestilence. Straightway the cry is, away with the Christians to the lions. That's written around 160, 170 A.D. So Ignatius is arrested. Ignatius is from Antioch. Antioch, if this is our Middle East, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Um, this over here is where Israel would be. This is modern Turkey. We've got Greece here. We've got, uh, that's the boot of Italy. Africa didn't make it in this, but Africa and Egypt would be down in here. Um, Antioch was one of the four largest cities during the Roman Empire. The four major cities during the Roman times that we're looking at were, of course, first Rome. You had Antioch, you had Ephesus, and you had Alexandria in Egypt. Those were the four centers uh, for Roman commerce and everything else. Now, uh, uh, Ignatius gets arrested here in Antioch, but he doesn't get killed there. They ship Ignatius, the government ships Ignatius, all the way to Rome to die. Why? Why would they ship him to Rome in 110 A.D.? Well, we don't know precisely, but we have a pretty good indication. You recall last week we studied how Rome burned in 64 A.D. with Nero and a, you know, 10 of 14 districts or so burned down and Nero started rebuilding. Not only did Nero rebuild, but the emperors that came after him did as well. Vespasian, you know, you got all this burned out area, you got to build something. Vespasian in 72 A.D. launched a 10-year building project that his son Titus finished around 80 or so A.D. 
It's the Roman Colosseum. Now this is what it looks like today. It's a bit run down. Originally, this circle went all the way around. It had awnings over the audience part. It's got the subterranean area where the animals could be kept, where originally they could flood for, for naval games. They had elaborate hunts they would stage there. They'd take the grounds. They had major groundskeepers. This was a major job in Rome, taking care of the Colosseum because you had to import the animals. They had lions. They had tigers. They had leopards. They have elephants. They have rhinoceroses. They have all sorts of animals that are kept in underground cages. They had these big uh, uh, pulley systems and elevators that would bring the animals up. Trap doors that would spring up. They would set up an elaborate gaming system where they'd build, bring in trees that they'd felled and they'd put them in the soil because they, over the whole ground they had uh, boards and then on top of that they, they'd put uh, uh, soil. They'd bring in trees and bushes and shrubs. They'd create miniature lakes. And then they'd put the people out there. If there are people to be hunted by the animals, then they'd be Ignatius and others. They're bringing them in from all over the kingdom to supply them for the games in Rome. When the Colosseum was actually initiated, there was initiated, the celebration was 100 solid days of games. You'd get a ticket. It was a clay ticket, typically. It'd have a seat assignment on it. But the games themselves were free. The Colosseum would seat at least 60,000 people. They didn't have TV. They didn't have magazines. They didn't even have the radio, much less CD players or iPods. So one of the ways that they kept busy, and also some of our writings indicate, one of the ways that, that the Roman Empire kept their people bloodthirsty enough to go out and be soldiers were by sponsoring these games where it would be a visible death. And, and the games were vicious. The animals were truly vicious. They had, uh, the, the way the Colosseum would be set up, they had a, a kind of, a, it looked like, uh, have you ever been to some of the World Wrestling Federation cage matches? Or is that just me? Okay, well, me and Bill Young. But anyway, the, uh, you got those cages, right? They actually had kind of a, 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 a wire, uh, a rope type wall that went around the arena and then to keep the animals from jumping out into the stands. And between that rope enclosure and the stands, they'd have trained archers sitting. And they'd also have them strategically placed up above. So if the animals did figure out how to get out, they could kill the animals. It was a vicious place. And so this is where Ignatius of Antioch is being taken for his death. He leaves Antioch. The soldiers take him through the roads of, of uh, Turkey, modern Turkey, um, and we think he went to Philippi because we've got a letter, another letter from the church at Philippi that indicates that Ignatius had gone there and asking for the letters of Ignatius if someone had a copy of them after his death. So Philippi, we know he went that far. How he went from Philippi to Rome, we don't know. That's been lost in history. But this little journey through the southern part of Turkey here, when there was a fork in the road, and, and, and Ignatius is being taken by ten uh, constables, ten soldiers. He calls them leopards. 
in his writings. But ten Roman soldiers are taking him. They're not nice. They're abusive. In fact, Ignatius said, the nicer I am to them, the worse they are to me. But that's okay. I'm learning faith through that. So he continues. But at that fork in the road, originally, Ignatius thought they were going to take the southern route, which would have taken him through Magnesia. I don't know how their milk was. Tralia, I'm sorry, you shouldn't make jokes on Martyr Sunday, but I couldn't pass that one up. And Ephesus, they, they did not go through those towns. Instead, they went north through Philadelphia to Smyrna, which is modern Izmir. If uh, you've ever go to Turkey, you can see the ruins there. Um, as a result, what, what uh, uh, the churches did along the southern route is they sent someone to minister to, to Ignatius while Ignatius was going. And Ignatius wrote letters to those three churches. Um, what we have, the letters we have from Ignatius are to the three churches at Ephesus, Magnesia, and Tralia, the towns that he, he did not make that he thought he would. In addition, after he's done all of that and he gets up there to Troas, he writes another letter. Uh, 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 and he may have actually written the Roman letter before he got to Troas. I've skipped something here. The letter to the Roman church is to his destination church, saying, I'm coming. Don't plan any traps to spring me, because I'm dying for the glory of God. So he writes a letter to the destination church at Rome, and then at Smyrna, he writes a letter back, or at Troas, he writes a letter back to the churches he visited at Smyrna and Philadelphia. That's six. And then he writes a seventh letter to Polycarp, who's the bishop of that church at Smyrna. Now, we're going to look at those letters this morning. We've got about 30 minutes to do so. And uh, uh, from those letters, we'll uh, glean uh, what we can this morning. If you've got your handout, I go into some more detail in the handout, and uh, you can always look there. These are some things that struck me. Um, I've got to tell you, the way I, I write this lesson or wrote this lesson and the way I write most of them at this point uh, in our church history tour is the, the, the background information and that kind of stuff I supply and we put together from a number of sources. But then when we get to the writings itself, I'm just telling you the stuff that, that occurs to me. This is the stuff that as I read it, and I've read uh, these letters multiple times uh, over my life, but as I read them and I reread them again for this class, these are the things that really stood out in my mind are the things I put in your handout. And then for the class this morning, I took the handout, and the things that really stood out in my mind from the handout, we've kind of whittled it down to make it fit into this 45-minute segment. So Ephesians, let's start there. One of the things that surprises me most when I read Ephesians is you start reading Ignatius' letter to the Ephesians, and boy, it, it reminds you of the letter Paul wrote 50 years earlier. There's not a doubt in my mind that Ignatius had a copy of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because he's echoing what Paul had said. Look at what Paul wrote. Paul told the Ephesians, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're predestined. You're chosen before the creation of the world. It's Ephesians 1. Look at the introduction Ignatius says. You're blessed with greatness through the fullness, instead of every spiritual blessing, the fullness of God the Father. You're predestined before the ages instead of before the creation of the world for lasting and unchangeable glory. 
Ignatius, if you read his letters, you will immediately see that he's referencing or even quoting out of the Gospel of Matthew. He's referencing or even quoting out of Corinthians. He's referencing or even quoting out of a number of other books. He spends a lot of time uh, uh, with some other things. Look at this. Paul in Ephesians, redeemed, quote, through his blood, were forgiven of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. Ignatius, we took on new life through the blood of Christ, of God. To him, Christ was God. There was no difference. And so it's through the blood of God. How is Ignatius so familiar with the writings of Paul? The Bible wasn't published yet. Where did these, uh, you know, we have 10 letters from Paul. Who put these letters together? How did we get them in the Bible? We don't know. If you were in here for biblical literacy, though, I want to remind you of something we studied in biblical literacy. If you weren't, then we're going to go into it a little bit again here today because these two ideas marry together. And when we were in biblical literacy, I was telling you there's this guy named Ignatius who wrote, and now we know who he is, so it works to put this together. Ignatius writes to the Ephesian church, and in the first several chapters, over and over and over, he names their bishop. Over and over and over, he names the bishop of the Ephesian church. of Ephesus, one of the four biggest towns... Definitely next to Antioch, one of the biggest churches at the time. And the name of the bishop was Onesimus. Onesimus. Ring a bell? Onesimus. Philemon. Clicking? Philemon was a slave owner around 60 A.D. Onesimus was his slave. Onesimus ran away. And when he ran, he ran. He made it to Rome. Paul converts him in Rome. Paul says, Onesimus, you have to go back. You have to go back. And when you go back, I'm going to send you with some letters. I want you to take this letter to the church at Colossae. Looks like there may have been a letter to another church nearby at Laodicea. And take this letter to Philemon, your owner, who has the right to kill you. Since you're a runaway, actually, he had the right to kill you whether he ran away or not. But he's, he, he certainly can kill you for running away. It's what a lot of owners do with the runaway slaves. So you've got this, this fella, I call him a boy, because I don't think a guy in his 30s or 40s who's been a slave all of his life is going to just up and run away. I figure by that point, most of us are defeated in life. <laughs> it's not quite true, but you, you're a guy my age, you know what I mean. Um, but you remember when you were a teenager and there's nothing you can't do and there's nothing that can hurt you? I figure the guy's a teenager when he runs away. Okay, I don't know. Could just be me. But I figure you got this teenage boy who runs away. He gets converted by Paul. He goes back. He's not only going back, he's a letter bearer. He's a letter carrier. That's a very trusted man. They didn't have a mail system then, unless you were with the government. They, you, so he's taking the letters back. These are letters that, that have the word of God for the church. Paul trusts him very... I mean, Paul knows the runaway slave is truly going to return home. He knows the conversion took. And so Onesimus goes back, and the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon says, hey, I could order you to grant freedom to Onesimus, your brother but I'm not going to because I don't need to order you. you. You'll do what's right. 
Onesimus as a name was a common name. We find it in a lot of records if you were a slave. See, the name meant useful. It was not a common name for a freed person because it was a slave name. Freed people wouldn't get names like useful. They'd get names like powerful and owning instead of owned and useful. So how did some guy with a slave name get to be the bishop of one of the two largest churches in the world? Well, there's pretty good uh, indication, and I walked through some of this in, in your lesson, and you can go back and get the Philemon lesson for more. There's pretty good indication this is probably the same Onesimus that Paul had sent back. And, and, and a number of good scholars cite that the collection of Paul's letters was probably done in Ephesus, which means it would have been done under the oversight of Onesimus. I mean, we know he already had Colossians. Scholars have often wondered why is it in the New Testament we have in the collection of Paul's letters all of these important church letters and then this one very personal letter that really all it does is set forward the freedom of the slave. But don't you know if you'd been that slave who was collecting Paul's letters, you'd have seen to its inclusion. So this Ignatius is the one, and it's wonderful to see the way Ignatius writes because not only does Ignatius name Onesimus as the bishop, but but Ignatius writes almost paralleling Paul's language in the Philemon letter as he writes to Onesimus the bishop and talks about how useful Onesimus was to him and how Ignatius is now the one writing Onesimus while Ignatius is in chains. Of course, Paul was writing Philemon about Onesimus while Paul was in chains. So um, that's in there. Next point. Ignatius talks about church structure quite a bit. And the church structure for Ignatius was threefold. There was a bishop, a single bishop, over these churches. In addition to the single bishop, the churches had an eldership and the churches had deacons. The eldership, the bishop, and the deacons. Now in the New Testament, which, you know, we'll go back a little bit from this, you don't find bishops in churches, a single bishop over churches like this. And I think, you know, it, it, lots of scholars conjecture how all of this has come about and, and what church structure should be. And, and should a church have only elders and deacons? Or should a church have a pastorate and deacons? Or should the church have a senior pastor and a pastorate and deacons? Should it be divided into three? Should it be divided into two? Should there be a super bishop over all the bishops? Should there be a, a, an, or an archbishop? Should there be something above that? Church structure is something we'll deal with later. And when we do, and I go back to this, I want you to remember, oh yeah, Ignatius, okay? For now, I'll just say that it was there. Ignatius on Christian behavior had some interesting things to say. He said, it's better to be silent and be real than to talk and not be real. Now, maybe that just occurs to me and, and means a lot to me because of what I do for a living. I'm a trial lawyer. It's better to be silent and be real than to talk and not be real. I want to tell you, I teach that to people when I teach them how to try lawsuits. The most important thing for me as a trial lawyer is when I stand up and I say something to a jury for it to be real to me. I have to believe it. 
If I don't believe it, I've got no business saying it. One of the reasons I went in and started my own law firm is because I used to be at a firm where I would get paid to go defend whoever it was that needed defending. And sometimes whoever it was that needed defending was uh, innocent. And it was a great joy to go in there and I believed in it. And I'd racked up a really good win-loss record. I hadn't lost any, man. I'd been winning and winning and winning and winning. And I was feeling pretty good about my courtroom ability and presence. And I got asked to go defend a company that was wrong. We were wrong. Not just wrong, we were dead wrong. We knew we were wrong. And I was asked to defend it anyway. Because the theory was, through my trial skills, I would be able to get the company off the hook. And they wouldn't have to pay this fellow. This fellow was a 45-year-old Mexican-American gentleman from San Antonio who had an eighth grade education and worked by the sweat of his brow and the strength of his back. And because of what we did, he had a triple or double fusion in his back and was going to have to spend the rest of his life working minimum wage jobs, losing the job that he had that paid $45,000 a year and allowed him to take care of his wife and three children. Now you go from making $45,000 a year with an eighth grade education, you're not going to be doing much more than, than uh, minimum wage, and you get stuck in a job that's going to start paying you $13,000 a year, and that's a life change. And I decided I was going to go in there and take the order from the company and take them down. I lost that case. That was my first loss as a lawyer. And I remember driving home. It was a two-hour drive. I'm all by myself in the car. And I have a tendency to talk to God all the time. And I was talking to him. And I was lamenting how horrible my life was. I'm just being honest with you. I was lamenting how horrible my life was because I was going to have to go back and tell everybody I lost. And that guy's getting to go home to San Antonio and tell his wife and kids he won. And I mean, it's like a Damascus Road experience. I mean, I mean, like drive off the road, thunderbolt. Would I have thought it better when we were wrong if I had won through trial skills? And that gentleman's going home explaining to his wife and kids why they'll never be able to live in their house anymore and their life will be radically different. And I'm going home. And so I'm convinced one of the reasons I lost that day is because God wanted justice done, and I'm thankful for that. But I also believe in my heart of hearts I lost because I didn't really believe what I was doing. I wasn't real. I was up there trying to sell something but it wasn't something that was right. And I made a decision then as a lawyer, I'm not going to stand up and speak unless I believe what I'm saying. Now, if I can do that in my job, why can't I do that in my relationships with other people? It's better to be silent and be real than to talk and to fib, not be real. It's good advice. He says, it's good to teach, if you do what you say. 
See, so I couldn't have like done that story if I was still in that frame of mind, but now I'm on my own, so I only take the cases I believe in so I can teach that. It's good to teach if you do what you say. Look at what Ignatius had to say about Jesus. Jesus the Christ, these are his words, our God, conceived by the Virgin Mary according to God's plan, both from the seed of David and the Holy Spirit. That's pretty clear faith. Those are words we're going to see echoed in the Nicene Creed in the 300s. And they're already being taught, 110. Ignatius on communion, and when we study the doctrines of communion as they evolve, we'll hearken back to this because this is actually a, a, a key statement in the development of communion doctrine. Ignatius called communion the medicine of immortality, the medicine we take in order not to die but to live forever in Christ Jesus. It's a different perception than we have in the New Testament. And we'll talk about that all enclosed in one class, but you need to know it. Now, a final note here. Ignatius is uh, uh, headed to die. This is uh, taken from uh, a, uh, what do they call it when you take all the little tiles and you stick them together? Mosaic, mosaic. thanks. This is a mosaic of, uh, uh, of the Eastern Orthodox Church of Ignatius uh, being torn by the lions in the Colosseum. As he's on his way to die, this is what he told the church. He said, pray continually for the rest of mankind. Pray for the rest of mankind. In response to Gentile, the, the unsaved's anger, be gentle. This man's about to be killed. Okay. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be gentle. Do not be eager to retaliate. And then he ends it with farewell in God, the Father, and in Jesus Christ, our common hope. And that's his letter to the Ephesians before he dies. He wrote to the Magnesians. Again, he echoes some of Paul. Paul had said in, in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. One body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ignatius said, let there be one prayer, one petition, one mind, one hope with love and blameless joy, which is Jesus Christ. Run together as one temple of God, as to one altar, to one Jesus Christ who came uh, forth from one Father and remained with one and returned to one. In the Magnesian letter, he talked about Judaism. He called Judaism an antiquated practice. And among the reasons he gave was they keep the Sabbath instead of the Lord's Day. So this is uh, outside the Bible reference. We know by 110. The standard teaching in the church was to, to gather together and honor Sunday as the Lord's Day. Um, he had a dying request. To that church, his dying request was uh, very short, just a couple of words in the Greek. He said, I need your prayer. He wrote a letter to the church at Tralia, the Tralian letter. On the Tralian letter, they were having some problems with heresy. The kind of heresy they had is something called Gnosticism that we'll deal with in a couple of classes. But uh, uh, Ignatius was pretty firm on heresy, and his response was really strong. He said, if you mix heresy, if you take Christianity and you mix it with heresy, or you mix it with worldliness, you're basically mixing Jesus Christ with poison. 
It makes no sense at all. This guy turned a really good phrase. He'd talk about how a, a church leader should be tuned to God like strings on a lyre are, are tuned, or harp. And he, he had some wonderful picture images as he wrote. But he says on heresy, he says, If Jesus only suffered in appearance, why on earth am I in chains? Why do I want to fight with wild beasts? If Jesus wasn't real, and if what he did wasn't real, if that's the case, I'm dying for no reason and I'm a nut job. And what's more, I'm telling everybody else lies about the Lord. If this Christianity stuff isn't real, and I don't just mean a neat way to raise your children. I don't think Ignatius was looking at it that way. If Jesus Christ did not physically come to this earth, if Jesus Christ did not physically die for our sins, if Jesus Christ was not crucified, buried, and resurrected, and if that's not real, he says, then I'm a nut job. But I believe it enough to where I'll die for it. He says, I believe Jesus was of the family of David. He was the son of Mary. Jesus really was born. Those are his words, not mine. I didn't add really because it makes the message better. He wrote it that way. Ignatius is writing a letter to the church saying, Jesus really was born. He really was persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He really was crucified and died and really was raised from the dead. Now, those are the churches that he didn't get to visit that he wished he had. He also wrote a letter to the church at Rome, right? The letter to the Roman church, that's the church where he's headed to die. And I chose this picture for the backdrop. Can we bring the lights down just a little bit? and uh, try to get the effect. That's supposed to be the sunset. Does that kind of look like a sunset? Okay. I love the way this guy wrote. Listen to what he says. He says, The bishop from the east, because remember he's from the east, the bishop from the east fittingly dies in the west. For in death he's setting, like the sun, from this world to rise again before God. The English teacher in you has got to like that. Yeah, that's a poet. He says, I die for God of my own free will. Let me be food for the wild beasts through whom I can reach God. I'm God's wheat being ground by the teeth of the wild beasts. Do not, do not try and stop it. Paul had said in Philippians, when he was in a Roman imprisonment, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ignatius says it this way, It's better for me to die for Jesus Christ than for me to rule over the whole earth. You make me Roman emperor. I'd rather die for Jesus. Now once he reached Troas, he wrote two letters back to the churches. He wrote a letter back to the church in Philadelphia. And I love this letter. Because this is a church where he'd been. And so he had a chance to interact with some of the members. I love coming to class because I get a chance to visit with some of y'all and I don't get to see you otherwise. And I love to interact. People will come up and they'll ask me questions about this or they'll give me insight into the lesson on a point that I didn't think of or that I missed. And, and, and it's wonderful give and take or they'll fill me in on what's going on in their lives or they'll fill me in on what's not. Sometimes it comes with cookies. Um, 
and uh, uh, I like that. Well, Ignatius had been through these churches. And I love the give and take that he must have had with the Philadelphia church. Because the Philadelphia church, they didn't have a Bible, right? But they had the Old Testament. They called it the archives. The Old Testament, the archives. Honey, would you get down to archives? I want to check something out here. Uh, you know. By the way, the only recipe in the Bible is in the archives. It's in the Old Testament. There is a recipe, uh, sort of. It's how to make butter. It explains how to make butter. So, yeah, get, honey, we've got to make some butter. Get the archives down here. Um, that's what they had. So here's this conversation with a church member. Church member, if I don't find it in the archives, I do not believe it in the gospel. In other words, if I don't have in the Old Testament, it's saying it. I don't care what someone says, this is, you know, Jesus and all this death stuff was about. I, I don't care if it was Paul. I don't care who said it. If it's not in the Old Testament, clearly, then I don't believe it's in the gospel. And Ignatius would reply, well, it is written. And the church member would say, well, that is precisely the question. Is it written? And so Ignatius sends them this. He says, the archives are Jesus Christ. His cross. His death. His resurrection. The faith we get from that that justifies us. Those are the archives. And the Old Testament, I think if Ignatius were to expand on that, he would say the Old Testament bears witness to Jesus Christ. But we worship Jesus Christ. We don't worship the Bible. Bibleolatry is another kind of idolatry. Now, we understand, please clearly, we understand the Bible is God's Word, inerrant and perfect in what it says. But it's not the object of our worship. Jesus Christ is. It's Jesus Christ that makes sense of the Bible. You can take the Bible and you can run off and start 30 different renegade religions that don't have anything to do with Jesus Christ and use the Bible as your proof text for all of them. It's not the Bible that saves us. It's Jesus Christ that saves us. It's the Bible that explains it. Okay? Does that make sense? And that's what Ignatius was saying. Smyrna. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole uh, story. Smyrna. It's modern Izmir. So this is a modern picture. Um, these are some of the ruins that would have been there at the time uh, uh, that, that Ignatius was. But back here, if I had had a better picture, uh, you'd see the towns, uh, the modern town. Um, it's an incredibly busy town. It's a, a big town. Um, Becky and I were in uh, Istanbul, and we rented a car, and we were going to drive to the ruins of Ephesus, and we stopped for lunch in Smyrna, or Izmir. And uh, the ruins are still there, and it's, it, all of that area is just an incredible area to tour for faith. I mean, it's just profound to think, okay, we're here. We're in Smyrna now. Um, Smyrna had already gotten a letter 15 years earlier. You know who they got it from? Anybody? John. Book of Revelation, remember? Seven letters to the seven churches. One of them's to Smyrna. 
And when John wrote it, Smyrna's a church where he says, you're rich. Even though you're poor as Job's turkey. You're, you're rich. Not because you've got money, but because you've got faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a richness that they still had 15 years later when Polycarp went through. I mean, Ignatius went through. Polycarp was the bishop there. Ignatius goes through. And you go back and you got to figure, well, I'm going to tell you, they kept the letter from John. Okay? The Apostle John writes you a letter. And it wasn't just the Apostle John. It's Jesus dictating it. Jesus says, take this letter and tell this to the church at Smyrna. So John has a revelation, he writes it down, and it goes, are you going to keep the letter from Jesus? Fifteen years? Yeah, I figure I'm good for fifteen years. Okay. They had that letter. Now you've got Ignatius, and Ignatius is going from Antioch to Rome. He's holding fast to his faith. He's not going to recant. He's not going to be in the Colosseum and say, I denounce Jesus. He's going all the way to the end. And he passes through your town and he's there. And he stays there for a couple of days. That's where he wrote the letters from, a couple of the letters in Smyrna. And you're the bishop. And you got this letter from John, Jesus. You going to read it to him? Uh, uh, yeah. And I love, I absolutely love what that letter said. Fifteen years earlier, Jesus saw fit to have this letter in this church waiting for when Ignatius or others would be coming through. Look at what it says. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all. I like to try and put myself in other people's minds and shoes. Sometimes I don't like it, but I, it's something that I just naturally do. And so I like to try and put myself in Ignatius' shoes. What would I do? What would I do? Well, I don't even like traveling alone, okay? He's not traveling alone, but he's traveling with ten leopards. Not as in leprosy, but as in the vicious animal. And he's being taken to his death and he doesn't have family with him. And some church members are meeting him along the way trying to minister to him, getting word out he's coming. Trying to make sure he's got something decent to eat. Trying to tend to him. Taking his letters from him. Delivering other letters to him. Giving him words of encouragement. And he gets to Smyrna and Polycarp's the bishop there. And Polycarp says, you know, we have a letter here. I want to, I want to read it to you. Because this may make a difference to you in the next two weeks when you're in Rome. Jesus said, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death and I'll give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all. And if I'm Ignatius, I'm holding on to that one. Polycarp, the bishop, was a collector of letters. We're going to read next Sunday about his death because he was martyred 40 years later. But I'm going to tell you that we also have a writing from Polycarp to the Philippian church that's right after this. 
Because Polycarp's writing the Philippian church saying, hey, I know that, that Ignatius was martyred, but have you heard the final details? I mean, is it over? And I, Philippian church, I know you wanted those seven letters that Ignatius wrote. I've got a copy. I'm sending them to you. Because Polycarp kept these things. So let's look at these points for home in light of this. Number one, when God calls you, set your face to the wind and walk. When God calls you to do something, set your face and do it. When you put your hand to the plow, don't look back, right? Luke 9.62. I mean, Lot's wife... Looking back, God heard a lot of salt. It's just, it's not, it's not the key. You don't do it. You don't live the Christian life looking back. When God has something in front of you, you do it. You just do it. You set your face to the wind. It may not be, feel good. It may not look good. It may not taste good. But when God sets something in front of you to do, you do it. And God will give you the strength for your path. Whether you win or lose in the world's eyes, that's not the key. Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference whether you win or lose in the world's eyes. You see, what, what we have is a world that we live in, but that we don't live for this world. We live for the world. You know, our sun is going to set in this world, but it's going to rise in the kingdom of God. And if I could persuade you for anything with any ounce of my being, it would be to truly, truly, truly get deep in your bones enough to where you and I would give our lives for it the following. Jesus Christ really walked this planet. He really was man and He really was God. There was a real crucifixion. It really happened. He really was buried. He really was resurrected. And we have a real promise that we will share in that resurrection and that our death is not an end. It's a beginning. And our sun doesn't set to be gone for the history of mankind. Our sun sets merely to rise again in God's kingdom and in His presence. And that's real. And that's a lot more important than all the petty little things that we tend to take all of our energy and pour them into. We need to focus on who God is and what God has us to do, and we need to do it. And when we're done, recognizing He'll give us the strength and what we need to do it, and when we're done, we go home to Him. Praise God. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our Father, I thank you so much for the, the um, wonderful witness of Ignatius. I am in awe, Father, at how you've not only moved in other Christians' lives throughout the ages, but how you've secured. I, it's, just, it's, a, it's a complex tapestry, Lord. I can't understand it all. It, it, how you've got this one guy who's 
going through these things and the church secures his writings through the ages and we've got a chance to read them and understand and get glimpses of not only his heart but how you've worked in scripture, how you had in scripture had planned ahead for other Christians and Lord certainly how you planned for us. So we rededicate ourselves to you right now as your children. We love you and want to follow you till the end of our days. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.